Welcome back to Bible Love, and I guess it's Happy New Year. It's been a little bit. We had a two-week uh, today, break. Yeah, we had a two-week break. Today, we're recording on January 10th, which is uh, Mary Balfour's nine-year anniversary of her ordination. I just passed on January 6th, was my seven-year. And so January is a time, at least in the Episcopal Church, where lots of folks get ordained. My associate, Gavin, whom you all will meet next week, he gets ordained later this month. When were you ordained, Tony? In 1982. 1982. A long time oh ago. You got us beat, man. Oh. We're like seven, nine years. Aren't we awesome? No. He's like, that's 42. Wow. Talk about a life well lived. Yeah. Well, I'm, here's very, I'm very blessed. It man. is the best. It is the best job ever. Don't y'all agree? It is. Yeah. The oh, yeah. I can't. I can't imagine my life any other way. Me either. Yeah, and we. I feel like it's the biggest joy of my life. Yeah. We had our Epiphany pageant this past week. We always do it the Sunday closest to Epiphany. And these two elementary age girls were angels in the Epiphany pageant. And then five minutes after, I got to baptize them and they were still dressed as angels. Oh, and I was like, this oh is the God. best job. It is. It's so great. Baptizing angels. I love That makes your heart swell. Yeah. It was great. That's awesome. So this. This is a prayer that we pray at every ordination. We also pray it on Good Friday. It's one of the solemn collects. For my money, it's the best prayer we have in the prayer book. So let us pray. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably on your whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. By the effectual working of your providence, carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation. Let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up and things which had grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, we are blessed as always with our very favorite. The Reverend Dr. Tony Hopkins is here with us, and we're talking about Daniel today. So we're in a new book of the Bible, which is an interesting book, and um, it's kind of long. It has a lot of interesting things. It's got stories we know. It's also got some strange stuff in there as well, or or to the naked eye might think is strange, and I'm so grateful um, to Tony to help us kind of think through this and parse it out. He's got great show notes that we will attach. Um, but Tony, talk to us about Daniel and and your, and your experience with Daniel since 1982. <laughs> well, thank, thanks, guys. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to the listeners. Uh, listeners, the notes are a little long, um, you know, so you don't have to read all of that. But But Daniel is, without a doubt, the most complex book that we have dealt with so far in our Bible Love podcast journey. And so I wanted to give you uh, more than I knew we would be able to cover on the podcast. So if you had some interest, you could dig a little bit deeper. Uh, The name Daniel means God is my judge, and Daniel lives into his name. He trusts completely in God's judgment or God's will for himself, for the people of God, and, and for the world. 
Uh, Daniel is included in the writings. Uh, so even though he's a prophet, he's not included in the prophets. And in portions of Daniel, it feels like we're in the former prophets because he is being talked about in the third person. And at other times, it feels like we're in the latter prophets because Daniel himself is speaking. The book divides very neatly into two halves. And the first half, we, we know a lot of that. Daniel in the lion's den, the three young men in the fiery furnace. The first half of Daniel is set during the Babylonian exile after the Jews have been carried off into exile. And all of those are stories about Daniel and his three friends, whom we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are actually the names given to them in Babylon. Their Jewish names are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. We don't know those names as well, but same people. And Daniel, we know him by his Hebrew name, Daniel, but he also is given the name Belteshazzar. Um, these stories are very typical Old Testament stories. They demonstrate the faithfulness of God, even to the point of miraculously protecting the three young men in the fiery furnace, miraculously protecting Daniel in the lion's den. And by the way, all of us who have used the expression, the writing is on the wall, that comes from a lesser known story in the first half of Daniel, some vessels had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and when King Belshazzar uses these holy vessels like ordinary cups and plates, a hand appears and writes on the wall, essentially prophesying his doom. And Daniel comes and interprets that for him. And he dies that night. Uh, but that gives us an expression we still use in our culture. The writing was on the wall or the writing on the wall. I have no idea. That, wow, cool. Comes comes from the book. So again, how many times have we said on the podcast, you know more Bible than you realize you know? Absolutely. So, um, and, and I'll maybe to kind of gather up, these stories I think have two primary things. One is, the limits of human power and wisdom, these kings who think that they are the wisest of all and the most powerful of all encounter the living God and discover, no, I'm not. And it's very interesting in Daniel, the first half of Daniel, to hear these foreign kings say, Daniel's God is the true God. Daniel's God is God of gods and king of lords. No one is allowed to blaspheme the, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So that's those confessions are very interesting. And the other great theme in the first half of Daniel is prayer. Uh, the, the, Daniel's enemies talk the king into saying that anyone who prays to anyone other than the king will be put in the den of lions. That's how Daniel ends up in the lion's den. But, but Daniel is undeterred. He carries out his normal practice of prayer. And if I were going to write a sermon about the first half of Daniel, I think it would be a sermon about prayer. And I would talk about prayer as a means to nurture our relationship with God. Prayer as a means to express our gratitude for God's blessings. And prayer as a means to turn to God when we need guidance or help. All of those things show up in the first half of Daniel. And I think that's pretty lovely. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but sometimes when I think about prayer, I'm like, 
all about Jesus and the New Testament. And, you know, I'm a Jesus person. We talked about this. Y'all know. Sure. But I love that there's this whole sense that, you know, of course, this is goes way before the new, I mean, prayer and God and all that, but that Daniel has a, such a strong emphasis on prayer. Um, right. You know, it's a new year and you know how everybody's like setting their intentions and trying to come up with stuff and like, what can we do? And, and I think that's wonderful. I'm, I'm always all for that, but like, Prayer is not something where I'm like, I want to intentionally pray every day. Like I do it all day long, every day, you know? And so the connectiveness that it gives me to God is something I cannot explain. And it sounds like that's what you're talking about. Well, I think, I think in Daniel and probably in our lives, sometimes we're so grateful. We need somebody to pray to. Sometimes we're so confused. We need somebody to give us guidance. And sometimes we're in such, such deep pain that we need somebody to help us. Mm-hmm. All of those are in the first half of David. So It reminds me of the Anne Lamont book, Help Thanks Wow. Have y'all read that? So that's how yeah. she divides prayer up. And it's yeah. similar yeah. to Daniel. Like, uh, help me, God. Thank you, God. I'm so wowed by you, God. You know? Right. And very, very, that's right. It's very similar in that. It is very similar. So, so with, with everybody's permission, uh, because those stories are more familiar and I'm completely confident in the readers, uh, the listeners' ability to read those stories and, 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 and y'all are going to help them work through the stories in more detail in subsequent weeks, I really want to turn fairly early in the podcast to the second half of Daniel. The second half of Daniel is the clearest example of apocalyptic literature that we have had thus far in our Bible Love podcast journey. Ezekiel had some apocalyptic flavor to it, but when we come to the second half of Daniel, this is full-blown apocalyptic literature. Uh, for, for you Episcopalians, when I was growing up Baptist, they, they, you know, not drinking alcohol was a big thing in the Baptist church. So when I taught in Baptist settings, I couldn't tell people to drink alcohol. So I would say, if you'll drink about half a bottle of NyQuil before you read the second half of Daniel, that that will help you. Um, so, you know, with your audience, they can take a little more latitude with that. Yeah. Um, but but really, um, two, two things I want to say about the second half of Daniel. One is it is the portion of Hebrew Bible that we can date most specifically. In 167 BCE, a terrible ruler named Antiochus IV. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. The word Epiphanes means manifest because he believed he was a God manifested in human form. He outlawed the practice of Judaism, no circumcision, no Torah, no sacrifice. And he sacrificed to Zeus on the altar of the Lord in the temple in Jerusalem. And this is the what the book of Daniel calls the abomination that makes desolate. It was the most offensive possible thing to the Jews. In what is something of a miracle, three years later, the little tiny Jewish people had managed to defeat Antiochus and his army, and they rededicated the temple 
And that birthed Hanukkah. The name Hanukkah means dedication. Mm -hmm. That takes place in 164 BC. The second half of Daniel was written after the sacrifice, the abomination, but before the dedication. So we can date the second half of the book of Daniel within that three-year window. And that is the only book in the Old Testament we can say that about. The other thing I want to say about the, the second half of Daniel, if you've read it and it feels strange to you, you are not alone. <laughs> it feels strange to all of us because in order to understand the second half of Daniel, there are two things you need to know. You need to know something about the historical events that occasion the writing, and you need to know something about apocalyptic literature. So let's do a quick Daniel History 101. After the northern kingdom of Assyria is destroyed, that leaves the southern kingdom of Judah, which includes Jerusalem and the temple. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 587 BCE. In 539, the Persians conquer the Babylonian, and Cyrus the Great of Persia begins to let the Jews go back home. They reestablish Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple, and they have a faith that is now built on temple and Torah. The, the Persian rule gives way to the Medes and then to the Greeks. Alexander the Great conquers the known Western world, including Judea. Alexander dies without an heir, so his kingdom is divided among his generals. So for roughly 140 years, Israel or Judea is governed by Egyptians, the Ptolemies. Cleopatra was a Ptolemy. In 198, the Seleucids, or the Syrians, defeat the Ptolemies, and Judea comes under the control of the Syrians. The first Syrian king over Judea is Antiochus III. He is a good king. He is a good person. He is very tolerant. He lets the Jews practice their faith. As long as they pay their taxes, he stays out of their business. Mm. But when his son Antiochus IV comes to the throne, I mean, Historically, he seems to me to be mentally unbalanced. He certainly is a megalomaniac. He becomes obsessed with himself and his power. Uh, and that's when he outlaws Judaism. And he commits this terrible abomination, sacrificing to Zeus in the temple of Yahweh. And this pushes the Jews over the edge. And under the leadership of Judah Maccabee, if you use a Bible that has the books of the Maccabees in it, those books are about the Maccabean Revolt, and how Hanukkah began. But they remarkably defeat the great Syrian army. Hanukkah is established. Judah becomes an independent political state for the first time in centuries. Um, and it is the in the in-between time. It is when things are at their worst. They can't read their Bible. They can't go to church. They can't circumcise their sons. They can't carry out sacrifice. And everything seems bleak. In the second half of Daniel, four visions, these visions are written to say all is not lost. And they use this genre, apocalyptic literature. Apocalypsis means a revealing or an uncovering. These stories are going to reveal something. They're going to uncover something. And really what they're going to uncover is that God is in control, that God is sovereign. 
this literature, now let's do apocalyptic literature 101. Wait, can I ask a question? Sure. Okay, so you talked, first of all, I don't know where I was in Bible class. Sorry, Steve Bishop. But I did not recognize that this is the first like actual date we have. I think that's very significant to 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 place us where we are and, and timeline and all of that. But also this idea of visions. So I, it's interesting to me because, you know, mental health is like such a, big issue in our world and we want people to have good mental health and here are people that are like struggling trying to figure out their life but there's these visions that might be happening and there's you know what I mean like it feels very like messy and complicated you know and how do we like decipher that in our heads now my dad had a vision um, about going to seminary. And I believe that was like very real. And it was just one incident, but I, I believe that was very real. But another person might be like, he was completely crazy, you know, and it's complicated. It's not really a question I'm asking. It's just like a discussion. Like, how do we compartmentalize these things? And maybe we can't. Maybe that's the answer. We talked about some of this when we talked about Joseph. Yes. Mm -hmm. Why do some people have dreams and other people don't have dreams? Why do some dreams have a clear meaning and other dreams do not? Well, these visions, I think, kind of, in a way, ramp that up. But in another way, I think these are more discernible. So if you don't mind, you've set me up to talk about that. Yeah. Apocalyptic literature. What I was trying to do. The writer, the writer uses a pseudonym. This writer says he's Daniel. He's not. He's writing 400 years after Daniel lived. That's okay. Be like me writing a book in which George Washington is the narrator. There's a difference between the author and the narrator. Right. The narrator. Um, the, the, the writer has special knowledge often given to him by angels or visions or dreams. Uh, there's a kind of cosmic perspective uh, think about Revelation. The narrator gets taken on a tour where he sees all of the earth and he sees heaven and he sees hell. It's very cosmic. There's a lot of symbolism. There are a lot of kind of bizarre hybrid creatures. We saw a little bit of that in Ezekiel. And in apocalyptic literature, there's always a final judgment in which God gets the last word. All of those features are in Daniel. Um. So let's maybe then the best way. Oh, let me mention this analogy. Here's a great analogy. Political cartoons. If you knew nothing about American culture and you came to the U.S. and you read our political cartoons every day for a month, you would say, what a strange place America is. Donkeys and elephants are mortal enemies here. Well, no, they're not. Uh, if you know what the symbols mean, it makes perfect sense. If you try to take the symbols literally, you're going to miss the point. I think that's really helpful, Tony, for that, people. That is exactly apocalyptic literature. So, so let's let's use a couple of Daniel's visions and give our our listeners just a little sample of how to work through an apocalyptic vision. Daniel's first vision, chapter 7, there are four creatures that come out of sea. Numbers are symbolic. Four is the number of the earth. 
four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth. In the creation story, there are four rivers, remember? So these creatures come out of the sea. The sea is the dwelling place of evil. In Revelation, the beast will come out of the sea. Four creatures come out of the sea. There's a lion with eagle's wings. There's a bear with three ribs or tusks in his mouth. There's a leopard with four heads and four wings. And then there's this beast that is terrifying and strong and has iron claws and is stamping around on things and has 10 horns. Strange to us. Right. Then there's a court scene, the ancient of days, the ancient one representing God, white hair, white beard, white clothing, sitting on a throne of fire. And this should make us all feel better. Daniel, the text says, is troubled and terrified by the vision. We're not the only ones who don't understand. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. So Daniel asked the attendant to request the ancient one to explain the vision. But the ancient one doesn't talk to people. The attendant explains the vision and says the four Preachers represent these four dynasties that we talked about, that I talked about just a few minutes ago. Babylonian, Persian, Median, Greek. The last creature is the Greek Empire. So the first of the ten horns is Alexander the Great. And the last of the ten horns is Antiochus Epiphanes. He's arrogant. He thinks he's God. He commits these terrible desolations. And the whole point is, when he stands before God, God bangs the gavel and says, enough. And then I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And to him was given dominion and a kingdom which will last forever. There's the message. Imagine you're living in between before Hanukkah. You can't go to church, no sacrifice, no circumcision. It feels like all hope is lost. And and the vision of Daniel comes along and says, this is bad right now, but this isn't going to last forever. And God will have the final. There it is. That's the message. And because Daniel feels kind of bizarre to us and Revelation feels kind of bizarre to us, they almost feel dark to us, but they are the opposite of that. Well, I was just about to say, like, I mean, I feel like that's so relevant to who we are even today, right? Absolutely. Gosh, so many in, people in twenty first in twenty first century America, do we do we have any rulers who seem obsessed with themselves and their own power? Hmm. Yeah, but even in our only on our daily lives, like, I mean knowing again that message that God is with us it's feel even though it comes like in this very strange sort of way right. you know i i think we need to hear that every day you know we need to know that every day you know uh alan are you in a, into this apocalyptic literature do you like this uh, not like building a bunker in my house apocalyptic type, yeah. but i think it's interesting um I remember growing up, I grew up in a more evangelical uh, tradition, and I remember people trying to parse apart apocalyptic literature and figure out what do the donkeys and the elephants mean in these political cartoons, like trying to read the tea leaves. And that really turned me off. And it's been 
since seminary and beyond that I can see it more for the poetry of it. I can see it more for the way it helps us use our imagination, the, the way Tony that you're describing it. Yeah. Um, I still maybe have some baggage around it, so it's not my favorite, but I'm learning to love it. Well, and I really appreciate how you're explaining it, Tony, because I do think that some people are, I mean, I'm a very visual person, like I need to look at things, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so if I just do that and reading this, I'm going to be like, I'm in crazy land. I'm in crazy town right now, you know, and the way that you're explaining it, again, it's literature. It's, and as Alan said, it helping us think creatively, and, you know, and some people's brains work that way, you know, and that might, this might be like the perfect book of the Bible for them, you know, because they can relate and understand in that way. And, and, and to your point of how visually oriented we are in our culture, I had a teacher in seminary who took the book of Revelation and turned it into a play. Oh, I love that. And and so imagine if you're living in the time of Daniel and you get to see a movie that as strange as it is, when the gavel falls and God says enough, the the, the theater crowd erupts into cheers. This is the message we've been waiting for. Yeah. It's almost like, thank God somebody has taken authority. Yes. Like, Eat people enough, 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 enough. Yeah. You know, and I think. Well, that- let me, let, let me, we, we got to talk about the last vision. It's the longest vision in apocalyptic literature. Very often um, they use this literary device where, again, I'll go back to, I, I might write a novel and use George Washington as my narrator. So in my book, George Washington could predict everything that's going to happen during the Revolutionary War. Why? Because that's history to me. I already know what happened. Right. That's what happens in the final vision in Daniel. Even though it's being written in the second century B.C., the writer puts Daniel back in the time of King Darius, and Daniel, quote unquote, predicts the Greek wars, Alexander the Great, the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes, and of course, the defeat of Antiochus Epiphanes. But in this final vision, the last vision of Daniel is the very last passage of the Old Testament to be written. And we finally get the first and only true reference to resurrection in mm-hmm. the Old Testament. And so I want to read this little text because this is so important. Daniel 12 and at that time, Michael, Daniel, by the way, names both Michael and Gabriel, the only two named Bible uh, angels in the Bible. At that time, Michael, the great prince, protector of your people, that is the Jewish people, will arise. There will be a time of anguish such as never occurred since the nations first came into existence. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like brightness of the sky and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep the word secret and the book sealed until the time of the end. That sealing of special knowledge is another very common feature. But this is so important as we've gone through our journey in Bible love, think about it. We haven't talked about heaven. We haven't talked about hell. We've talked about Sheol. 
but not hell. Uh, if there have been angels, they've just been messengers. They're not the angels that they're going to become in the New Testament. So what happens is in the mid-160s BCE within Judaism, there is developing a doctrine of resurrection. And in the 190 years between this and the ministry of Jesus, this doctrine is going to expand mm. seeds of Everything we find in the New Testament are right here in the very last passage of the Hebrew Bible to be written. So, so from a Judeo-Christian perspective, there's no way to overstate the importance of this. And by the way, Judaism in the first century will also develop a doctrine of eternal life and resurrection. But, but, but we remember in the time of Jesus, not everybody believed in resurrection. The Pharisees did, but the Sadducees didn't. And this is really debated among scholars, but my guess is the common Jew in the time of Jesus probably did not yet believe in resurrection. It was a it was a new doctrine. The Pharisees were the cutting edge people to be making a case for a doctrine of resurrection. And so ironically, the people, the Pharisees, who play a pretty significant role in having Jesus killed, at the same time, are the ones whose endorsement of the doctrine of the resurrection give legitimacy to the claims of Jesus' followers that Jesus has been raised from the dead. One of the great ironies in the development of our faith. Well, Tony, thank you so much for A, explaining, but also like just showing the significance of this book. Um, I think we often just love the stories and we don't really think about how connected they really are into um, the new life, into the new covenant, um, and also given us that that important date so we can kind of date ourselves and understand where we are for those. That, it's kind of a book that can, can open up to whatever kind of thinker you are, you know, creative, historical, you know, we all have different ways of processing. And I right. feel like that's kind of one of the themes I heard. It's a book for everybody. You know, that's a good awesome. word. Daniel has something for everybody. Yeah. Um, and so I really appreciate that. Um, thank you. You're amazing as always. So appreciate you. And, and a, bo- we'll- a bottle of NyQuil in the book of Daniel. Yeah. And is, yes, a bottle of Michael, or, or if you're an Episcopalian, a bottle of wine, um, whatever you need. Uh, so listeners, we'll keep talking about Daniel next week. We're excited about that. But remember, as always, we love you. But most importantly, God does. <laughs>